once we have these different tools at our disposal, we will get our dairy industry to reduce more than 40% methane. Mm -hmm. And once we get to that point of reducing more than 40% methane, then we have replenished much less methane than is naturally destroyed. And that means our dairy industry will be climate neutral, not adding any additional warming, but even being able to sell credits to other industries. And that makes this whole thing financially lucrative. Hello and welcome to this special episode of Dairy Digressions, the new podcast of the American Dairy Science Association, the Journal of Dairy Science and JDS Communications. I'm Matt Lucy, former editor-in-chief of the Journal of Dairy Science and JDS Communications and fellow of the American Dairy Science Association. I'll be your host. Dairy Digressions is where we get an inside look at the science and the scientists that are making headlines both inside and outside the dairy industry. We explore cutting-edge research that creates knowledge and drives innovation in the production and processing of milk for human consumption. Hey, out there, help me grow this podcast. All you need to do is like, subscribe, and spread the word to a friend or colleague. Today we have with us Dr. Frank Mitloner. Professor and Air Quality Extension Specialist from UC Davis. Frank, welcome. Well, hello to you. It is fantastic to have you here. I'm sure everybody is certainly very familiar with you. You are probably one of our more famous guests we've ever had on this podcast, given to your work and sort of climate, climate change, air quality, all the things that everyone is talking about across basically all areas of science and all areas of whatever, okay? Everyone is talking about climate change. But I want to start out with a few easy questions before we get into the climate questions. And I think the first thing I want to talk about is, where were you born? I was born in the western part of Germany, near the Dutch border. And how did you get interested in dairy? Uh, that's a good question. I originally wanted to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> 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 I applied to medical school, wasn't accepted. And as it turned out later, I wasn't accepted erroneously. But by that time, it was too late and I had already signed up to study agriculture. And so that's how I ended up in agriculture. And I never looked back. I always uh, have enjoyed it very much. So your undergraduate major was agriculture or was it, was it biology? No, I studied agriculture engineering in Germany, and then I went on to do my PhD in uh, animal science at Texas Tech University in Lubbock. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense. You were originally an agriculture engineer. So I remember that your early work was on air quality and particulates in the air. And that, that reflects your interest in engineering then. And it still is. Uh, I'm an air quality specialist. So I, I study anything related to air. So that's particles, gases, and of course, greenhouse gases affecting climate are just within that scope. When I'm in California in the dairy industry, okay, now this might be completely wrong, and just tell me if I'm wrong, okay, but it seems a little smoggy down in the valley. Is that just me? I've only been there once. It's not a little bit smoggy. It's very smoggy, and uh, depending upon when you get there, you can really see poor air quality. You can experience poor air quality. In fact, there's a Samarkin Valley of California, and that's where the majority of our dairies are located is designated as the worst air quality location in the United States. Number two is Los Angeles. Number three is Houston, Texas. And that is the reason why I was hired about 21 years ago, because agriculture, while not being a major emitter, 
is still a contributor to poor air and finding ways to minimize that was always part of my challenge. I remember you've always had an interest in workers and the effects on their productivity, you know, differences in air quality. And we have a lot of pigs here in Missouri and, and people are always like, well, should I go into the swine industry or should I go into dairy industry? And, you know, swine barns, the barns themselves can be quite dusty. And I think there's a lot of interest in sort of that whole topic of your where you work, how it affects you over an entire career. That's one of the things you're sort of investigating, I think. Yes, I do a lot of work around dairy and beef uh, issues of sustainability, but we also work quite intensively in the area of swine production and even poultry production. So sustainability is the overall topic of what we do. And within sustainability, people oftentimes think it's just environmental issues, but sustainability is broader than just environmental sustainability. It, it also includes animal welfare. It includes worker health and safety and attracting, retaining a qualified workforce. It is also food safety and it is last not least financial viability. So sustainability is broader. And rather than just focusing on cattle, we also look at other species. And so your appointment is extension. Are you 100% extension or? No, I'm not. I have a three-way split appointment. I'm a professor, so I teach large classes here at UC Davis with 400 undergraduate students in domestic livestock production, lab classes, as well as normal classes with you know 400 or so sophomore students. Then I do research, and of course, uh, that is really the flagship of what I do. And then I'm also an extension specialist, so I take the knowledge we amass at the university and extend it out to the real world outside our university bubble. Okay, so Frank, how do you get that done, right? That must be impossible. A three-way split, right, which is, you know, that's pretty much known as the hardest split imaginable, plus large classes at UC Davis. Those are, the expectation is then excellence in teaching, of course, it's Davis. How do you get it all done? How many hours are in the day? Do you have a different <laughs> clock you're working on or what? No, I originally had a 100% extension and research appointment. I actually wanted to have teaching added to my appointment because I think that the interaction with students is really very important for a university faculty member. Without this student engagement, my life would not be the same. I also think that the outside world, the extension world, adds relevance to my classroom teaching because my students in class know that if I teach them on something related to nutrition or reproduction, to management or emerging issues around the livestock species I teach, that I know what I'm talking about, that I have seen farms and I've been with farmers in situations that I talk about in class. And so that gives me a lot of additional firepower, so to say, as a teacher. I really enjoy teaching. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, you know, when we talk about teaching, and I don't teach as much as you do, but I teach five weeks of dairy science to freshmen, you know, mostly kids never step foot on a dairy farm or even any farm whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And it's your opportunity to sort of present information in a balanced manner so they understand what agriculture is and how it works. Of course, as you can appreciate, thankfully for the dairy industry, we have a very good story to tell. You know, we have an excellent story to tell. And, and many, many agricultural industries have an excellent story to tell. And sort of putting it out there is so important, particularly for those that may have never been exposed, you know. And the other thing I think about, which is great about teaching is, um, you know, you're around young people. They sort of make you 
feel younger. I don't know if that's a real thing, but you know, you're around young people and, and it kind of keeps you moving and stuff. And I always explain to people, you know, if you don't like young people, don't become a faculty member at a university because you're going to be dealing with young people. All right. If you don't like their phones or if you don't like this or that about who they are, like this isn't the job for you. Right. Because every year it's a new crop of 18 year olds that come through those doors. And I didn't know that about you, that you had the teaching load as well. Is that kind of typical at UC Davis that most faculty teach or no? No. In fact, most people who have an extension appointment do not teach regular classes. I'm one of five faculty members at the university with 2,000 faculty members. So a three-way split appointment is rare, but yeah. I think it is uh, really important. And you're right. We do have a great story to tell, yeah. particularly in the dairy side of agriculture. But the problem is, while we do have a great story to tell, we don't have storytellers. Yeah. We don't have enough people who are able to break down what we do in, in animal agriculture, in dairy production, for example, to the real world and to influencers who want to talk about what we do. And we're going to talk about the Clear Center. So I know you have at least one student. His name is Connor McCade, right? Yes. But do you have additional students or how many students do you typically have? I always have six, six PhD students. Six? Yes. Oh, my God. That's a big lab then. Yes, I do have a big lab. Yes. What's your philosophy in terms of training those people? Well, I think it's really important to enable them, teach them, train them, and then let them off the leash and let them do their work and check in from time to time. The people who graduate with a PhD from my lab normally are comparable to those who have one or two years of postdoc under their belt. And they go into really great jobs. I mean, I have trained about 20 PhD students so far, all of them have received excellent jobs in academia, in agencies, in industry. No matter where they seek a job, they will get it. And so uh, that to me is just super important. That's my personal sustainability. You know, when, when I think of teaching students, whether it's undergraduate or graduate students, that is the sustainability of a faculty member, isn't it? Mm. That's how we live on. And so to me, this is what gives me the energy. That's what makes me really motivated. And I have to say, I hear some people complaining about the younger generation. I don't at all. I think we have excellent 20-year-olds today. The way that I can teach them, the way they retain information, the, the way they crave information, I'm just, I'm just stunned. I'm, I'm very happy with the students we have. And I'm on science here at UC Davis. We have 1,600 undergraduate students, the largest wow. animal science major in the country and uh, two undergraduate students. And I can not attest that we have an issue with quality in that generation, but the opposite. Yeah, the we found that we interviewed on Dairy Digressions. We interviewed the winners, including Connor, of some of the contests at the dairy science meetings. And they were graduate students. But when you listen to them, you're like, wow, these, these kids are really sharp. They are really motivated. It was quite good. You know, it, it gives you confidence in, in going forward. It's a, it's a different generation. They approach things differently than we do. We had our challenges and they'll have theirs. But there's a lot of smart kids out there who want to make a difference, you know, and it's just like you say, there's, you talk about your PhDs and I think about my PhDs. Nothing makes you prouder than see your people succeed, right? That's exactly what you want to have happen. Do you have a favorite day at work. Like if you could just have a day, okay, it's not going to be writing emails, I'm sure, but what is your favorite day at work? Your favorite day at work where, you know, like 
Okay. I know we all have emails to answer and, you know, letters from administrators and stuff, but what's your favorite day at work? Yeah, those are not my favorite days. Whenever <laughs> I'm in my office, that's not my favorite days. My favorite days are those when I'm in the real world and uh, when I deal with real people and when I don't have to worry about politics and can really have an impact by sharing information with people who I think really matter to me. And these can be farmers and ranchers, these can be agency people, these can be politicians, these can be chefs or dietitians. And I have such a broad clientele. That to me is just invigorating. I mean, literally, the other day I was invited to the CIA, not that <laughs> CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. Yeah. And there were 100 top chefs there. And they wanted to know something about beef's impact on climate. So now I talked to 100 top chefs who had a terrible impression of what beef's environmental footprint is. And I had a lot of time to spend with them. Or I, I spent time with dietitians or time with uh, state or federal politicians, senators, congressmen, governors, and so on. That to me is really, really interesting. But what I find most invigorating is when I meet with farmers. And more and more often, I meet with farmers who not just know who I am, they can even pronounce my last name, and that means something. <laughs> they really know who I am, and they have incorporated some of our findings in their real-world practices, and that impact is what matters the most to me. I listen to Progressive Dairy podcast, and sometimes they have California farmers on there talking, and they're so knowledgeable about you know what they're doing and why they're doing it, and they want to be part of the solution just as you want to be part of the solution. I want to be part of the solution and not be in the denial mode because there's solutions out there. As you pointed out in your talk at DCRC, which we'll explore a little bit more, but we want to be part of that solution. Where did you learn to be a good communicator? Because you're an outstanding communicator. So, Well, I think we're all just a product of uh, what's handed to us. And uh, my mother was a very vibrant person. When she entered the room, that room just lit up. Seriously. <laughs> I don't know. That that was just something without even speaking, uh, the yeah. room lit up. Yeah. And my father was not that way, but he was an excellent speaker. He was an yeah. excellent speaker. He was a teacher, also a faculty member, uh, training students to become high school mm -hmm. teachers. Mm -hmm. And he was also a politician. And while the other politicians always needed to read off their scripts, and they yeah. read it, I mean, word by word, and that was yeah. super boring. My father just stood in front of hundreds of people and gave a free speech that was absolutely impeccable. And as a 14-year-old, I remember once sitting in the audience at this political venue where you spoke, and he was just unbelievable. I was so proud. I was just so proud and yeah. and thank God he passed it on, you know, so it's not something that I take for granted. I'm very, yeah. very thankful to my parents. Yeah, because as we'll talk about in the Clear Center, you know, communication is, is such a big part of this. And I think you understand that, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you just need to communicate with the general public. You need to communicate with everybody at all levels, right, to get this right. And I'm going to give you some examples of that, but it's an interesting challenge to communicate at all levels. You know, Frank, I did a lot of reading leading up to this. There's a lot of moving parts to this whole climate thing right now. There are tons of moving parts. But I want to talk about your, your presentation at the DCRC, which is the Dairy Cattle Reproductive Council meeting in Salt Lake City. It was a few weeks ago. And 
for those of those who don't know, the Dairy Cattle Reproductive Council, it's it's not a directly affiliated with the American Dairy Science Association, but it was born out of ADSA members, and it basically works on dairy cow fertility, and they invited Dr. Now you got me worried I'm not pronouncing your name right, but I'm looking right at it, but it's got an H in there. I don't know how to handle that H. It's like to learn, mid-learner. Mid-learner. Oh, yeah, there you go. That's very helpful. (laughs) And you made a presentation on climate, and it was outstanding. And you got some, I've not got too many times when people applaud my talks in the middle of them, but you got one of those, which I thought was pretty, pretty solid. And I want to start out with a series of questions. You've been in this business a long time. And when we talked about climate change, of course, we first started talking about global warming, and, and then we started talking about climate change. And you know as well as I that when scientists began talking about just global warming, and I think they talked about that before they used the term climate change, the denial and the pushback, and it's not real. So first of all, is this a natural climate cycle? I know that's like, what are you asking me for that? You know what I think, but is it just a natural climate cycle? No, it's a good question because it comes up a lot, so it has to be addressed. So it is absolutely true that there are natural climate cycles. We have gone through uh, periods of heating and cooling throughout world history. There's no question about that. What's different now is that we are on an up cycle, on a warming cycle, that has left the normal steepness of the trajectory of warming. And what it correlates with closely is the amount of carbon that human activity emits into the atmosphere. So what that means is that when we, for example, take carbon out of the ground, and that's oil, coal, and gas by and large, so that's fossil carbon, and fossil carbon used to be uh, plant material and animal material that lived hundreds of millions of years ago, these plants and animals, that's all the biomass that lived on Earth for hundreds of millions of years. That material died, decayed, fossilized, accumulated underground. And over the last 70 years, seven zero that is, humans took about half of that carbon out of the ground. And what did we do with it? We burned it with cars, trucks, trains, planes, ships, putting that carbon, that ancient carbon that was in the ground for so long into our atmosphere. And every time solar beams hit those carbon molecules, they heat up and trap the heat. And that's what's different now from earlier phases, that in addition to a normal warming trend, we are adding enormous, immense amounts of carbon that was in the ground into the atmosphere. And with this increasing amount of carbon in the atmosphere, we see increasing warming. In my opinion, there's no doubt that we have a global warming slash climate change, that we're experiencing that. Most farmers who will hear what we are discussing today will attests that this is not just a change in weather, but it is a change in climate, that our climate today is different from what it was when their parents or grandparents farmed. It's an interesting point because I've been following the the global warming climate change story for a long time and and reading about the models they had. And of course, the the global warming thing's been going on for a while. And then people are debating, well, is this a human thing or is this a natural cycle? And I think Recently, people have sort of mentally flipped to say, okay, there is a natural cycle to this, but it's being accelerated by the carbon. And and as you brought up in your talk, let's be very clear. I read a lot of summaries on agriculture and all the else, but it's the transportation thing that is just really skewing this thing. And you would agree with that, Frank. It's the burning of fossil fuels 
And that's what's really driving this thing fairly globally. Is that fair enough, Frank? It's the fossil fuels. Yeah, I would cast it a little broader. Yes, it's fossil fuel use, but fossil fuels are used wider than just in transportation. They're also yeah. used to make power and uh, for other uh, purposes. So yeah. it is all those sectors of society that burn oil, coal, and gas. Yeah. Whether it's to move from A to B or to warm homes or to uh, produce power, every time we do these activities, and all of us do it, so it's not yeah. anyone pointing fingers at somebody else, it's all of us doing it. Every time we burn fossil fuel, we add ancient carbon into the atmosphere. And that fossil fuel use is responsible for about 80%, 80% of greenhouse gas emissions in a country like ours. So, Frank, I'm going to digress for a second, okay? Because I'm sure you're an American citizen, but I know you were born in Europe. So mm -hmm. right now we're not talking about methane digesters, but alternative sources of energy, okay? Like, for example, in Denmark, okay, I probably missed – I thought they're going to buy 80% of their energy from wind, or maybe I'm just – that's incorrect. I don't know. But is there hope for alternative sources of energy, a solar or wind? Is there any – in, in your wildest imagination, can they power the United States of America, those those sources of energy? Nuclear, I'll put nuclear on the table. What do you think? So in the country where I'm from, Germany, about half of all power is now generated by uh, renewables, and that's mainly solar and wind. And they have made some, in my opinion, some serious mistakes. One of them is to shut down their nuclear power plants, which were very safe to operate, but they shut them down after this uh, Japanese debacle there. In my opinion, that was a significant mistake because now whenever there is not enough sunlight or not enough wind, they buy some power from neighboring countries, which do use nuclear power. Right. So in general, there are examples in the European Union where entire countries are largely now powered and fueled by renewable resources. So will they produce all of our energy needs? I don't think they will produce all of them, but they can produce the majority of them, particularly if we put nuclear in the mix. The question always is price, because these renewables need to compete with the fossil fuel sector, and the fossil fuel sector oftentimes is subsidized, oftentimes is just cheaper than the renewables are, uh, particularly nuclear power. There was some hope recently that nuclear power could be generated in these really small Nuclear reactors, I, I don't know if you heard about, but in, in states like Utah, mm -hmm. uh, they had planned to build these really small nuclear reactors mm -hmm. that can power, let's say, a community of 50,000 people or so. But it seems that there's some rethinking of this because it's it's very expensive to build those. Now, I don't know all the details, but in general, I do think that uh, renewables can play a very important role. Mm -hmm. They will not totally do the job, but they can be a significant part of the total mix. I'm going to ask you something that you might not be willing to answer, but I'm going to just ask you this. Do you think the fossil fuel industry is interjecting confusion into this conversation? Is there a systematic attempt to interject confusion into the entire climate change story? And the, even the out to your question is, do you think it's possible the fossil fuels are maybe throwing a few rocks at methane and the cows? You may not be willing to answer that, but I'm just curious what you would think I'm about I'm absolutely that. willing to answer that. In fact, I've written about it. I've written a blog not too long ago, and you can find it on our Clear Center webpage. It was BP, British Petroleum, which years ago came up with a brilliant idea of placing the blame 
or changing climate to individual consumer decisions. Saying, what is your carbon footprint, Joe Blow? What do you drive or what do you eat? Or what's the carbon footprint of a plant versus animal source food diet and so on? Yeah. And so uh, they were the one that started that. BP is the one that started it. And that's widely known in climate circles that they did that. And the other fossil fuel companies chimed in. And that's when it really started, that people were told that what they need to do personally to change our impact on climate is change the way they live, change the way they drive, change the way they heat, change the way they eat, change the way they live in general. And uh, that's where it came from. As you've explained, the CO2 is a really bad guy in this equation. I think you did a good job mentioning that that lasts in the atmosphere for a thousand years. And then the methane's been cast as a bad guy. I think it's fair to say you would argue sort of unfairly that the methane has been cast. I mean, I listened to your talk, Frank. You're not denying that we're going to mitigate methane. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about the great strides that California has made mitigating methane. Let's face it. Okay. I think you would argue that, look, at the CO2 is is what we need to focus on. The methane, we can fix that to a certain extent. And then I I don't really understand the nitrous oxide. So do you agree that it's the CO2, the one that's really the one that ultimately, once we've fix the methane problem, then we got to figure out how to fix that. Well, we have to fix all three. So there are three main greenhouse gases. One is carbon dioxide, and that's largely associated with the burning of fossil fuels. We just talked about that. Mm -hmm. The second one is methane. And methane is largely the source of ruminant animal agriculture, also rice production, landfills, and so forth. And then the third one is called nitrous oxide. It is a very potent greenhouse gas, that's generated when you put nitrogen fertilizers, whether they're chemical, synthetic fertilizers, or animal manure in the ground, then some of that nitrogen that you put in the ground is converted by microbes into this gas called nitrous oxide. What's the difference between CO2, methane, and nitrous oxide insofar that they all are climate pollutants? Well, methane is about approximately 30 times more powerful per molecule in trapping heat from the sun. Nitrous oxide, 265 times more powerful than CO2 in trapping heat from the sun. So CO2 is the least powerful per molecule, but humanity produces so much of it that the sheer volume of that gas is overpowering. And the big problem with CO2 is once it's in the atmosphere, it stays there pretty much forever. It doesn't just disappear. Nitrous oxide, similarly so, um, is very powerful, but it is also long-lived. Once it's in the air, it stays there for well over 100 years. And here is where methane is different. While methane is powerful, as I said, almost 30 times more powerful per molecule than CO2, it has, thank God, a short lifespan. And that means that there's actually a process that kills methane, that destroys methane. And that process occurs within approximately one decade. And so now if we produce methane at a similar amount of what is destroyed, then there's roughly a balance, meaning a constant source of methane leads to relatively constant warming. If you increase methane over time, then you increase warming. And we surely don't want to do that because it's a powerful greenhouse gas. 
But if you manage to decrease methane, then you are replenishing less methane to the atmosphere than is being destroyed. And that means now carbon levels are going down. If you decrease methane, you instantaneously lead to less warming. And that's why methane is so special. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying methane is not important. I'm not saying we can look away when it comes to methane. I'm saying we need to manage that gas. Methane is nothing other than energy. What you use to cook your meals at home or heat your homes is natural gas, methane. Nobody would say that's a problem because it's a utility that we use every day. It is a problem only if we don't manage it right, if we just off-gas it into the atmosphere because then it's a potent greenhouse gas. So let's find ways to help our farmers identify pathways to manage this gas and convert it from was a liability into an asset. And that's possible. Do you think, does this go into this discussion of GWP star versus GWP 100? I know that this GWP star is kind of a different way of looking at methane. Is that fair or not fair? It is fair. So the notion that methane is not just produced, but also destroyed is very important in understanding what the impact of this gas is on actual warming of our yeah. planet. And yeah. that's what it's all about. We're not really interested in CO2 equivalent emissions. I mean, what does that mean to Joe Blow? What does yeah. your neighbor make out of an industry producing 100 million metric tons of CO2e? Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Guaranteed. Most people will not understand it. You yeah. are a scientist at a well-known university. If some teenager, your your kid were to ask you, what does that mean? A hundred megatons or a million metric tons of CO2e. And you were to explain that, I think you would have a hard time. Mm, okay? Yeah, for sure. Even though you have read a lot about it. Right. And what we really need to worry about is not so much carbon equivalent emissions as warming, actual warming. That's what we have to worry about. Okay. Because we have signed an international agreement together with 200 other countries, mm. which says that we shall limit ourselves to one and a half to two degrees centigrade additional warming. And that is the goalpost. And so if we now want to identify how our farmers can reach that goalpost, then we need to give them a way of calculating their contributions that is warming related and not just carbon related. Right. So I noticed that the GWP star sort of gets at that a little better. It's just a better calculation. Of course, anytime you introduce new calculations into the equation, you have your detractors. And I, one of the things I want to talk to you about, Frank, is that you know, a lot of these debates are, 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 are held in very elite scientific magazines, you know, that, that basically scientists read. And maybe it's not fair, but you get one side of the story in science and nature in general. Maybe that's not totally true, okay? But anyways, there's this letter to the editor, and, and, and it's basically methane metrics, the political stakes, and they're talking about GWP star versus GWP 100, and, and they're kind of writing it off as just politics. You know, it's just politics. It's not reality. It's politics. Is the difference between GWP star and GWP 100 just politics? They're writing it off the politics, okay? The big nations want GWP star, the little nations. It disadvantages the little nations. Is that true or not? No, that's not true. 
So let me give you a little background. So what I'm about to say now is something I've said for many years, and I was not alone uh, by saying it. Scientists from Oxford University, some of them world-leading climatologists have said it, and that is that if you use this old way of quantifying the impact of methane on climate, and that's called GWP100, it describes the impact of a gas over a 100-year time span. Mm -hmm. Again, methane is not out there for 100 years. It has a lifespan of 10 years. That's why it's inappropriate to use a matrix that characterizes a 100-year lifespan have said for years that if you use GWP100 for a constant source of methane, let's say a constant cattle herd in the United States or so, then you are overblowing their impact on climate by a factor of three to four. Yeah. For the longest time, that was put off as, oh, Midlunar is an animal scientist. He's trying to deflect off the responsibilities of the sector on climate. Well, in the most recent Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, IPCC report called mm -hmm. AR6. You can mm -hmm. read it. Mm -hmm. On page 123, it says exactly what I just said, that if you use GWP100, and the world has been using it for the last 30 years, mm -hmm. if you use that matrix for a constant source of, of methane emissions, mm -hmm. then you're overblowing its impact on warming by a factor of three to four. The IPCC AR6 report says it on page 123. That is the world's leading body on climate. Now, it also describes the use of GWP star in the same report on the same page. Why? What is the big deal about the use of the one versus the other matrix? Well, the one matrix, GWP100, does not take into consideration the fact that a constant source of methane will, over a decade or so, see also significant reductions. So a constant source of methane, let's say a cattle herd with a 1,000 cows, if it always stays a 1,000 cows, after 10 years, that methane that was produced by these 1,000 cows will also be destroyed. There will not be additional warming by that herd of 1,000 cows, unless that dairy grows from 1,000 cows to 1,500 cows over 20 years. Then there will be additional methane. But if this dairy with a thousand cows, let's say, uses feed additives or an anaerobic digester, it reduces its methane by 20% or so, then that dairy replenishes less methane than is naturally destroyed. Mm -hmm. GWP100 does not account for that. Mm -hmm. GWP star does. So and that's very, important. Yeah. You know, as you describe it, I, I just, it's interesting about models, right? And the models matter. It's, it's true. The models really matter and getting them right really matters because to a certain extent, that's what we have. I was interested in the, uh, you talk about models and uh, I was reading and again, I, I'm a big reader of nature and science and, and they, they had this little article about reproducibility goes on trial in ecology. And basically the, the point of the article is they gave 246 ecologists the same data set and asked them to analyze it. They get 246 different answers. So you always have to fight for the right model, don't you? You always have to fight for reality because in the end, models are based on math and those equations should sort of come to the same point unless you know there's certain assumptions that don't agree. Don't you get tired of fighting? At what point do you get tired of fighting? You know. So, so first I, I want to say one more thing about GWP star. The guy yeah. who invented this was Professor Miles Allen from Oxford University. He mm. was the former chairman of the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. Mm. He is, he's a physicist who has 
no understanding of animal agriculture. I, I don't mean to uh, be rude about this, but he has absolutely no link to animal agriculture. But yeah. what I found very interesting was that in order to explain GWP star, he used animal agriculture as a case study. Yeah. He said what we are currently doing, putting the blame on, on climate change on our livestock herds is inappropriate because, and then he explained. Yeah. And he explained the physics. And here's the thing, Matt. I have yet to meet another scientist who would say GWP star is wrong on the physics side of things. On the science side of things, everybody agrees it's right. Okay. Some people say it's not fair, but everybody I have ever heard would say it is scientifically correct. So now we have to, on the political side, and that's not Frank or anybody else on the science side, that's politicians. They have to figure out how to maneuver that politically. But from a scientific perspective, GWP star is right. Right. And GWP 100 is a simplification that was branded as a simplification on the day it was released 30 years ago. There were 20 or 30 footnotes underneath those tables that explained GWP 100. They had just then been cut off because people tried to further simplify and they made it wrong as a result. I'm glad you brought that forward. I'm really glad you brought that forward. And basically what you're saying is, look, at the math is correct. You can argue about the politics, but the math is correct. We all can live with the math, right? We all know math. You get the same answer, right? So, And I, I think one of the things that's really interesting about California, and you brought up the 2030 init initiative, and you also brought up the fact that how much progress California Dairy Inc. has made towards that initiative. I, I don't think you're all the way there. I mean, 2030. I mean, what kind of people like put out things like 2030? Are we, this is almost 2024. I mean, you want to move a needle in six years, but you're getting closer to achieving that? I mean, what, where are you at with meeting the 2030? You talked about it in your talk. So a few years back, the legislature here in the state of California decided that not just on air and water, but also on the climate side, we need to be the most aggressive internationally. And so they decided to come up with a law called SB 1383 that mandates a 40% reduction, 4-0, 40% reduction of methane to be achieved by the year 2030, so six years from now, below 2013 thresholds. And our farmers scratched their heads saying, how in the world can we achieve that? That's the most aggressive international goal there is. How can we achieve this? What I have to say in defense of our legislation, I'm not doing that very often because oftentimes I disagree, but what I have to say in their defense is that they did something that was unique. Namely, they decided not to use the Kane approach of rules, regulation, fines, or taxes, but they used the carrot approach to help farmers achieve the 40% reduction. They said, we have to incentivize these reductions. We have to have a carbon market that helps those producers that reduce emissions be enumerated on that. And that worked. Not just were anaerobic digesters financially supported, but a market was generated to give credit to those who convert biogas, which comes from the dairy lagoons, into transportation gases, into fuels, so to say. So they took, they covered the lagoons, they trapped the biogas, converted it in transportation fuels, 
And these transportation fuels called renewable natural gas are now going into heavy-duty trucks and buses, replacing the diesel they previously used. That addresses both climate and air quality issues because renewable natural gas from dairy lagoons burns much cleaner than diesel does. So the state of California considered that a double whammy. So and for those listeners who might think, well, how big a deal can that be? It's a really big deal. Five years ago, we had 20 digesters in the state of California. Half of them worked. Now we have 220 digesters. And very soon, I will predict that right now, we will have so many digesters that at least the manure of half of all California dairies will end up in a digest in a covered lagoon, converting the biogas into utilities. Now, our dairy sector has to reduce approximately 7 million metric tons of this gas, 7. They have just started it a few years ago with these digesters, and they have already reduced 2.5. So they have already achieved 30% of their reduction goal, and the state has financially enabled them to do so through the use of this carrot approach. And it works. And as soon as we have other tools at our disposal, such as feed additives, such as breeding strategies. Yes, you heard me right. Methane is a heritable trait. You can breed for low methane animals. Once we have these different tools at our disposal, we will get our dairy industry to reduce more than 40% methane. Mm -hmm. And once we get to that point of reducing more than 40% methane, then we have replenished much less methane than is naturally destroyed. And that means our dairy industry will be climate neutral, not adding any additional warming, but even being able to sell credits to other industries. And that makes this whole thing financially lucrative. Is that the carbon credit market you're talking about? Or is the carbon credit market something else? Yes, we have a so-called cap and trade system in California. That means you have a cap, okay, and you must not exceed that cap of emissions. But if you do, then you have to pay a fine. And that fine is then going to those who can reduce emissions. And farmers are those who can reduce emissions. Mm -hmm. And therefore, some heavy-duty industries will have to pay some money that goes into a pot from which those who provide solutions will be paid. Mm -hmm. Do you think, if you move the needle in California, is this a case study or is this really going to move the needle globally? I mean, is this a case study? Oh, it can be done. Is California simply setting the example for the world at this point? Or is, is this, does this have a potential to move the needle in terms of global climate change? Yeah, so this requires quite some nuance in the answer. So, for example, a country like Germany contributes 2% of total global greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, 2%. Uh, Germany is an industrial powerhouse, so uh, that's a sizable chunk, but most people would say that's not very much, right? So what if they reduce half of all the emissions, then that's 1% of global emissions. Well, mm-hmm. while that's true, if every country were to say the same thing, then we wouldn't do a thing. So mm-hmm. we all have to do something. Mm-hmm. And In the United States, livestock emits a total of 4% of greenhouse gas emissions. That's all beef, dairy, swine, sheep, and so on. 4% Mm -hmm. of all greenhouse gases in the United States are associated with animal agriculture. Approximately close to 2% of all greenhouse gases are associated with dairy. So Mm -hmm. 
it's not what's oftentimes portrayed in the news, which is mm -hmm. that we have killer climate cows and so on. That's ridiculous and really uh, motivated by other objectives these writers have. But it is true that there's a contribution and it is true that we can further reduce these contributions. So now to your question, is California moving the needle? Well, California is showing that we can move the needle. And if it were an example to other places and everybody were to have an approach such as the one I'm describing of using an incentive-based approach, a voluntary incentive-based approach to, to reduce emissions, then we could have sizable reductions of emissions globally. Yes. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting you bring that up, Frank. And, you know, there's American politics are just so crazy right now. As a citizen of this country, I just feel like, would you just please try to fix something? Can we pick something that matters to people and try to move it, the needle as a nation? You know, and climate is for sure one. Wouldn't it be nice to, as a nation, to say, you know, we've had these initiatives, we've reduced methane or the footprint of animal agriculture this way. And there you go. California is making progress. And as you said, these digesters, I mean, everybody's like, well, they'll never work. They're too expensive, blah, 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 blah. And you mentioned you're already up to 250 functioning digesters in the state of California, you know. And as you know, there's more to it than just digesters. There's genetics. There is potential for feed additives. You know, people talk a lot about 3NLP and stuff like that and feed additives. And the point of the matter is when you put intelligent people to work on a problem and you stop, first of all, stop denying the problem and acting like it doesn't exist or it's somebody else's problem. But when you put intelligent people to the task, it is kind of amazing how things can happen, you know, and like you said, California is a great example. You know, I've always been really proud of California. I mean, people from the Midwest say it's a bunch of crazy liberals out there. But the bottom line is, I don't know, Silicon Valley, they've got more dairy cows than anybody else. I mean, it's what, the eighth largest economy in the world? I don't know if that's true or not, but California would say that, right, Frank? California is the fifth largest economy in the world. That's true. Right. There and you go. And California is by far the number one agricultural state in the United States, by far. It's twice as important with respect to total cash receipts as Iowa. And Iowa is a big one. But we have 400 specialty crops here. People think of Hollywood and Silicon Valley. But California is a very agricultural state. And if you uh, travel around California and you meet with farmers, I tell you, they, they make you proud. They make you proud of being in agriculture and working with agriculturalists. I'm very proud to be here. I, uh, I think this is the right state for me because it brings together People from urban centers like L.A. and Sacramento and San Francisco with uh, some of the most productive farmers in the world. And so being at a university at the University of California in Davis puts me right into that intersection. Mm -hmm. And I am able to bridge those gaps yeah. and to inform those who are not very much informed with respect to where their food comes from and how it's produced. And uh, we can make a significant difference. I think it's important, based on this talk and listening to you, I, I first heard you, I don't know when, but it does really stimulate my interest in this topic, that this this clear center. So can you just, what is the clear center? And you know, I see you got a clear center jersey on there. I always 
had a lot of extension activity as part of my total portfolio. So I gave 130 to 150 invited talks annually, about a third of those internationally. So there was a lot of travel involved. But when I give a talk like the one you attended recently, I might reach 100, 200, maybe 300 people. And while that's a sizable number, one might think, it's not really reaching the masses. But I think we actually are at a stage where we do need to reach the masses. You uh, mentioned it initially. We have a great story to tell. And I counted that, yes, we do, but we don't have many storytellers. And I think that that needs to change. We have to stop thinking that all we need to do is produce abundant food, nutritious food, and make some money with it. Uh, because in order to have the social license to produce food, other things are now requested. And these are in the realm of sustainability. People want to make sure that the food they consume was raised humanely, was raised in an environmentally benign way, is safe to consume, was raised by people who are treated well, and so forth. So these things are now at the mind of consumers. So years ago, people came to me and said, Frank, I think what you do is great, but can't we put this onto some kind of larger platform? And so I went to talk to my dean and discussed it with her. And she said, Frank, you might need to establish something like an institute or center, a sustainability center, and do research, but also think about the, the extension portion. And so I did that. I hired a journalist. Uh, that was my first hire. He's now the director for communications for the CLEAR Center, and then several other individuals. So the CLEAR Center has two cores. One is the traditional research core with PhD students and postdocs and so on. But the other equally important uh, core is the communications core. And so here we have a journalist overseeing the communications that we have a filmmaker, we have a social media expert, we have another journalist as a writer. So I have formed a real communications core. And that combination of world-class scientists with world-class communicators is what was needed, in my opinion. And it has really made a big difference. It is praised and hailed by many, particularly in agriculture, but also people who are just interested in getting real information about food that's fact-based, that's science-based. But it's also feared by some, because let's make no mistake, animal agriculture is under vast criticism by some very loud people out there. They make up a small minority, but they're in powerful positions. And many of them are in the media arena. I hate to say it, and I know they, they won't be happy for me saying that, but that's the way I experience it. They have a beef with livestock that was preceded long before anybody uh, talked about climate. Uh, in earlier years, they uh, made this a topic of animal welfare, animal rights, water quality, when they found that these topics didn't resonate enough with the consumer, they found that the climate one does resonate. And they right. switched over to climate, and now it's all about climate in their views. And because we have such a credible voice here at the Clear Center, I'm oftentimes really in the crosshair of those folks. And I have to tell you this, I am so proud to work with agriculture, and I'm proud as an agricultural scientist to have the impact to make changes to have the trust by these farmers and ranchers and to really make meaningful impacts and move the sector along. I always looked at Temple Grandin, who is my academic aunt, by the way. She and my doctoral advisor were both trained under 
uh, Stanley Curtis at University of Illinois. Yeah. Yeah. And I always looked at Temple Grandin and I thought, man, she has moved the needle big times, mm. right? Big times. Mm -hmm. yeah. You might like her or not, but she definitely has moved the needle. And so having that level of impact was always uh, yeah. one thing that I was striving for. You asked me about that initially, and it's still yeah. that way today. You're just so right. There's the need to educate the scientists, the public, the politicians, and there's so much misinformation out of there that you know you cannot trust. And, 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 it's, and it's kind of, to some extent, the, the information is a bit ingrained in people's minds. So like, oh yeah, it's, well, everybody knows that these ruminants are bad news and we need to deal with that situation and, and this constant education. And I'm, I'm listening to stem cell podcasts and they're talking to this lady who works on muscle stem cells, you know, and, and she's from Stanford. And she's way up the food chain and at Stanford and everybody here is Stanford and, and she's an expert on muscle stem cells. And then, and I'm listening and she's talking about all her muscle stem cell work and I'm good. And, and then she just pivots. Yeah, we got a new grant to work on, you know, lab grown meat because we all have to do our job for climate change, you know, and I'm thinking to myself now she's a brilliant stem cell, muscle stem cell biology. And she's doing a side project on lab grown meat because we have to do our job for climate change and i thought to myself she's not a bad person frank and you would agree she's not a bad person but she's just parroting what she's heard she's a full professor at stanford you know and and working on a brilliant area of muscle stem cell biology but hey, you know we gotta you know and as a side project we're gonna work on lamb grown meat because we gotta do our part for climate change and you know, That's Matt, a few years ago, I had the interesting situation of having uh, met both Pat Brown, the uh, CEO and president, former of uh, Impossible Foods, and yeah. with Ethan Brown, same at Beyond Meat. And yeah. both of them had predicted that in the years to come, in the near future, we would get rid of animal agriculture and replace it with plant-based alternatives. Yeah. Pat Brown... Uh, also a professor from Stanford, <laughs> funny you mention it, that's what yeah. triggered that memory, said to me, by 2035, we will have replaced animal source foods with his alternatives. And I said to him, I bet you a steak that you're wrong. And I <laughs> guarantee you that he is wrong, because since then, I have carefully observed what these products do on the market. While there was an initial hype, people tried them out and felt, mm, you know, that's interesting. It doesn't taste the same, but it's it's similar. I have nothing to object. Uh, they are expensive, but, you know, I'll try them. But since then, they have drastically come down. Not just the meat alternatives, but also many of the milk alternatives. Right. The total alternative market on the protein side of things makes up 0.3% of total sales today. And that's after years and years of hype. I mean, how were they praised in the media as the new upcoming thing? Yeah. And now the same media that had hailed them so much are completely quiet about them, yeah. even though they're losing 20, 30% annually yeah. from a very low base. Nobody yeah. talks about that anymore. And now what I find interesting is the cell-based and the plant-based, like Impossible and Beyond, are fighting each other for market right. share. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting how these things develop. So I have absolutely zero hopes for any of those cell-based uh, alternatives. I think they are complete no-go. It's not going to happen. Yeah. It's, it's, and this is one of the things I teach about milk in my class is I put up a label ingredient for, you know, almond 
milk substitute, whatever that stuff is. And then I put a, a label for a, you know, red tap whole milk. I think, I hope that in the future, people understand that there's nothing finer than a natural product of the mammary gland, for example. And there's nothing finer than naturally produced meat. I mean, you know, meat, you know, that is as close as you get to a food that's unadulterated. Okay. I don't know if I'm using the right words here, but you know, there's no preservatives in milk. Okay. And there's no preservatives in meat either. I don't think, okay. These are, these are just products. And I, I'm a big label reader and I just feel that. So very quickly, do you have any favorite people living or dead that inspired you? What, who, who was it that inspired you in your career or, or just a favorite person or a scientist? Well, Stanley Curtis from the University of Illinois certainly inspired me. He established years ago the discipline of livestock ecology, and um, people never really understood what that meant, but it's the interrelationship of livestock and the environment, how a livestock affects the environment and how it's affected by the environment. That to me was always was always very special to me. My doctoral advisor, John McGlone was, um, Temple Grandin was, you know, there are, my father certainly was, there are always several people in one's lives who changed the entire trajectory. And they certainly, all of those have certainly done that to me. If you were not a scientist, would you go back to that psychology degree or what do you think? <laughs> no, 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 in fact. But I tell you this, my interest in psychology has never hurt me because uh, when you work in an area like I do, uh, psychology or psychiatry, and that's really what I wanted to do, thank yeah. God it didn't work out. But that background kind of helped me uh, throughout my career. Hey there, Dairy Digression listeners. We have a bonus episode for you. I caught up with Frank after his trip to the UN Climate Change Conference, COP28. This conference is a landmark event in the global efforts combating climate change. And the most recent meeting was focused on food systems and agriculture for the first time in its history. Keep listening as we go behind the scenes of COP28 and get the key takeaways. Today, we have a return visit from Dr. Frank Mitlerner from UC Davis, who has recently turned from COP28, and we are going to talk all about that, including what the heck does COP28 stand for? Well, what I figured out, it's called the Conference of the Parties Number 28. It is the global, the global meeting on climate change. Uh, it's organized by the United Nations. Yes, Frank. And anyways, yes. welcome, Frank, to this return visit. I do appreciate you accepting our invitation. Oh, you're very welcome. And I'm glad to be back. You know, we all in America, we saw a lot about this conference. You wonder what's going on. Who are those people? And then when last time we were talking, you explained that, well, I'll be going to that conference. So the first thing I want to get off the table is exactly how does one go about going to the conference? I mean, I'm assuming you just don't hop on a plane and show up and pay your registration fee. There's probably a little more to that. Yeah, there are two ways. There's one public portion of it, and pretty much everybody can go to that. And then there's another one, and that's the one I went to. And to that, you can only get via invitation. And that's where you have many politicians and scientists. And, you know, this is a, a by invitation portion of the COP28 only. And that's where you meet a lot of the makers and shakers. 
And this is in Dubai, of course, which is nested. I guess it's on the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. Is it on the Red Sea? Or... Yeah. And is the conference organized, the COP28? I know it's sponsored by the UN, and I know there's a lot of politicians, and we know that Kamala Harris was there representing the United States as an example. I'm sure there was tons of Europeans there as well. Is it is it organized a little bit like a dairy science meeting where you have sessions that's focused on certain things or is it and, and there's a program and you go see what you want to see or is it a science conference or politics? What exactly are we doing? It is it is like a animal science dairy conference times 100 times 100. Yeah, I think there were 80 or 90,000 participants. What? At oh, yeah, this is a massive meeting. At an incredible place. I mean, huge expo place with so many people. It is super easy to get lost. Yeah. It is extremely difficult to find your place, the place where you are supposed to go. You uh, walk around and you run into Secretary of Agriculture, Tom, Tom Vilsack, or our agricultural minister here from California. So you, meet, you see people who you normally don't see, but you know of, even though... It's a vast area and so many people, but it's really, really eye-opening and very interesting. Are there 80,000 hotel rooms in that place? There must be in Dubai, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not cheap to go there. That's for sure. It, this place is unreal. I have traveled a lot throughout my life, but I've hardly ever seen anything that was so carbon intensive as what Dubai is. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's unreal. This is just not held at the Holiday Inn. It's not held at the Kansas City Convention Center. I can't imagine a convention center that'll suck up that many people in general. No, it's held at an expo. And the expo was built, the, the whole infrastructure was built a few years back, and it is uh, just enormous. So you went to Dubai and you got an invitation and, and what was your session, were there other speakers talking about agriculture there or what did you talk about and what did you contribute that was different from other speakers maybe there? So first of all, I was invited by the Inter-American Institute for Cooperation on Agriculture and that is an organization that represents agriculture in the Americas and they wanted to know more about how do we adapt and how do we mitigate um, agricultural's impact on climate? So how do we mitigate it? And then uh, overall, how do we adapt to a changing climate in agriculture? And because we do a lot of research along those lines here in California, uh, I was asked to provide that what I would call a success story. You know, other speakers were, and I just mentioned a uh, name, Tom Vilsack and, and the Secretary of Agriculture from Mexico. And, you know, many people who play important roles within agriculture. It was overall a very positive meeting. Some of the people who are quite critical on agriculture, as we know it, uh, were there as well. Some of the anti-agricultural outlets, news outlets, and so on were present and tried to play the gotcha game of who funds you and you know those kind of things. Uh, but overall, um, it was constructive. It was positive. And it was very different from what I thought. This is a very important meeting, one that agriculture cannot stay away from, particularly not when the focus that was announced was on food. So now right. think about that. A meeting held at the United Arab Emirates in Dubai, as I said, a hotspot for fossil fuel production with focus on food. 
What's okay, that all so, about? So they said, so we will focus this meeting, this COP28, on food production and consumption. And I thought, wow, that is really rich. <laughs> That's really rich. This place is the center of fossil fuel production in the world. And we know that the 800-pound gorilla around climate impacts of humanity is fossil fuel. But let's talk about cows and food production. Uh, I thought that was rich. So I'm glad that I was there. Yeah, I think it, we uh, touched on this a little bit in the last podcast we did. It, is that, you know, the more you read, the more you realize, wow, there's two competing storylines here. And the one storyline is the fossil fuel one, which I think is probably the more credible storyline. And then, you, But they're always trying to pump up the animal, the meat consumption, animal production storyline, because why not, you know, divert the attention to the farm animals, which is fascinating, right? Well, Matt, you have known me for a long time, and you know that I'm not deflecting the responsibility that animal agriculture has on the environment, that it has on climate and so forth. I acknowledge that there are impacts, and I study the mitigation of these impacts. And right. then I find ways to effectively communicate that with interested stakeholders, whether it's farmers or environmental groups, whether it's politics or politicians. That's what I do. And because of that, it was particularly important to be at that place. You know, when you, when you say about that, Frank, that's an excellent point. So I'm just going to ask you, was there any pure science at this conference? Were people presenting new technologies? The meeting is not really about that so much. It's more of a platform to discuss policies and political goals and um, approaches and form coalitions. And, you know, that is at least what I have witnessed. Now, this place... This place is so large, I don't know what happened in other places, in other buildings and so on. But where I was present, it was more of a platform to share experiences, share results, bring people together and so forth. I'm going to digress, Frank. Are you ready? I am. And we're going to talk about methane, okay, because I know that's something you're really interested in talking about. But I've been reading, I like to read about carbon capture and new technologies with mm -hmm. carbon capture and whether or not it works or not, not, you know, I was reading that, oh, in Nova Scotia, they acidified the water in the harbor to, to attempt to see if it would capture as if they acidified it, could they demonstrate that the, the seawater would capture more carbon? You know, I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, and then a reading about these carbon capture devices, any hope of a device that will capture carbon? Yes, but not seawater, at least not in a way that's scalable. I mean, think about the incredible volume of water that you find in an ocean. Mm -hmm. No matter what humans would possibly do with that ocean, it would never really make a difference with respect yeah. to that ocean's potential to capture carbon. Ocean water does capture carbon, but it's not that we acidify it a little bit and then it does more in a sizable way. However, what could happen is the fossil fuel companies, they have known about the role they play on producing carbon emissions since the 50s, 60s. And they do have the technology to put the carbon that their products emit back into the ground. It would cost money, but they could do it. They have the technology, and if they were pushed, they could do it, and they should do it, because that is where the 800-pound the gorilla is. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, I saw that Biden administration sent over Kamala Harris to speak. And make a presentation. I mean, I think China and the United States are probably number one, two on carbon emissions. Fair enough? Yes. 
did the Chinese premier come to the conference or did he send over people from China? Yeah, there were high-ranking people there, but not the president or prime minister, but high-ranking climate experts and climate politicians, yeah. Do you think China is serious about reducing climate? The problem with China is that they are declaring themselves to be still a developing country, which is a joke. I mean, China is not a developing country. There are parts of China that are still at developing country status, the, the rural parts of China, but yeah. the cities are way more developed than anything we see in this country here mm -hmm. or in any other country in the world. I mean, that's a country that has the potential, not just the potential, it has shown that it can build 25,000 miles of bullet trains in five years. Okay, that's a, a country that builds cities with 17 million people capacity within a few years on an empty field. I mean, they really shouldn't play that game of uh, we are a developing country and therefore we have the right to emit as much as we want for the foreseeable future. They are by far the greatest carbon emitters and the main way they're doing it is through the burning of coal. Mm. And if they don't change drastically, then anything else everybody else does doesn't really matter very much. I mean, yeah. a country like Germany, which is one of the largest industrialized countries of the world, emits about 2% of total greenhouse gases. It is a small fraction of the amount of carbon that's emitted from China, a small fraction, okay? So if they were to reduce their carbon emissions by half in Germany, that would not even be measurable overall. Even though I'm not saying they shouldn't do it, they should do it like everybody else does. But overall, if places like China, like India, like Brazil and so on, if they don't play their role and continue to grow the way they have been, then all the reductions in the rest of the world will not even be consequential. I think that's an interesting point, Frank, and an important one. Right. I mean, I think you make a great point about China is, you know, Belgium can reduce its output by half and it doesn't matter if China doesn't do anything. It's interesting, isn't it? We have certainly uh, many friends of the American Dairy Science Association in China. We have Chinese authors in uh, Beijing, very strong on the food science side of the equation. And we can hope that we all work together to fix this thing, right? That's, you know, international mm -hmm. collaboration is critical. I will say I've been to... Um, Beijing a number of times, and I've been treated wonderfully. But the one thing you really notice when you're in Beijing is the pollution, right? And mm. I think the Chinese understand it's very polluted because they had to shut down all the factories for two weeks before the Olympics. Um, mm -hmm. And I always felt to myself, you know, if, if I ever had a politician that didn't think that taking care of the environment was important, I think I'll just take him to Beijing and tie him to a telephone pole <laughs> for a month and see what they think about the environment. Because, and this is not, I'm not trying to say anything bad about my friends in China, but I'm just telling you, you can really see the pollution and the difference that it makes when people don't pollute. Fair enough? Is that fair? Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, I've been there well over 20 times and I have an appointment at a Chinese university as an adjunct professor. So I have been there many times. I have breathed that air many times and suffered from it. I share your concerns, and I know that they are really bothered by it, too. They are trying to change it. We have to also understand that one of the reasons why China is uh, polluting so much is because they are producing so much. And a lot of what they are producing, we are consuming here. So uh, finger pointing always works in, in weird ways, where you point at someone and three fingers point back at you. So, I mean, if you look around the stuff that you have in your office or in your home and how much of that comes from there, it's mind-boggling. 
So we are enablers in that way. Okay. So we have to see that too. It's something that I think is really important. And, you know, when you talk about climate impact, it's it's not good enough to export your carbon emission overseas and, and, and buy products, okay, and act like you don't have carbon. You know, it's true, right? It, your carbon footprint has to do with not only what you produce inside your borders, but what's produced outside your borders and brought into your borders. So now you get sense? me going on a topic that you might not even have on it's your mind. It is dairy digressions, Frank, so we can digress, okay? <laughs> yes. So, and that brings us to a topic called territorial emissions, okay? So what that means is that a country is blamed for the emissions that are produced there. So if you, let's say, are an agricultural country like Ireland, and assuming that the majority of emissions from agricultural products stems from the farms where they were produced, then the country, let's say Ireland, is blamed for all of those emissions associated with the production of these whatever potatoes or butter or whatever they export. And they are exporting it into other countries that consume it, but the country that buys it from Ireland does not get blamed for the emissions. Now, that's because the emissions from agricultural goods are largely blamed on the farms that produce them. On the fossil fuel side, it's the other way around. Norway, a country that's largely just like Dubai, uh, like the UAE, founded on fossil fuels, a country like Norway is not blamed for the oil, coal, and gas that they're extracting and then selling, exporting into other countries. But the countries importing those fossil fuels they are being blamed with the emissions. So a country that's rich and that's based on fossil fuel production, like UAE or Saudi Arabia, they are producing the fossil fuels, but they are not burning them there. They are selling them elsewhere. And therefore, the nation that buys those fossil fuels gets blamed with the emissions. But a country that's agricultural, that's producing food and exporting it gets blamed 100% of for the resulting emissions. And so this is a inherent problem with the carbon emission accounting system internationally, right. yeah. that agricultural countries are blamed for the emissions that are associated with producing those, but fossil fuel producing countries are not blamed with emissions that they are producing because yeah. they're selling it. Yeah. It's yeah. like a, a drug dealer saying, you know, I'm not the problem. I'm not consuming it. The people who buy the drugs, they are there to be blamed for all the effects it has. We are just selling it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how that makes it so tough on the farm communities because it's just not a fair playing field. And your point about Norway is excellent, right? No one ever thinks of Norway as a country that's contributing to climate change, but to a certain extent, their products do contribute, which is... Of course, in a major way. And yeah. it puts countries like Uruguay, like New Zealand, like Ireland in a really bad spot yeah. because of how things are accounted. So I want to talk about some of the key outcomes with respect to methane, okay? Because I know that's one of the things that you're really focused on because of the situation with the ruminants. And which really caught my eye was that the Environmental Protection Agency of the United States is finally going to clamp down on the oil and gas industry to reduce the amount of methane that leaks from their wells and their pipelines. And there's been several kind of high-profile publications on this in science and satellite imagery 
to mm-hmm. show that it's not an inconsequential amount of methane that leaks. And so that, that that's probably a good thing, right? I mean, it should have been done a long time ago. Fair enough? No is doubt. It, is, I did some calculations, Frank, and I my calculations were maybe incorrect, but it, it's not a small amount. It would be a piece of the pie. Fair enough? That just yeah, leaks yeah, out of these sure. things. So yeah. if you look at uh, satellite imageries and so on, you'll find hotspots for methane in areas like West Texas, Oklahoma. So there are in the Dakotas, for sure. And you think, well, they have livestock. Yeah, they do have livestock. But what you see there are uh, point sources uh, with high concentrations of methane around them. And what that is, is when fracking occurs or other types of fossil fuel extraction, then the extraction sites are not plugged. And that means those pipelines, those pipes sticking out of the ground, remaining open, and the gas just spews out. And that has been happening for a long time, and that's just wrong, because you could plug them and you should plug them, and then that gas would not come out. But once you just imagine a a straw that you put into a gas bubble, and you just leave that straw open, and and the gas keeps uh, coming out not at concentrations high enough to make economic sense to being utilized, but high enough to cause significant environmental harm. So we'll see if that happens, or I guess it's going to happen. We'll see. I mean, that's what's supposed to happen. And what I wanted to ask you about was, I can't remember if we're on air or off air, we were talking about how the COP28, one of the focus, you know, in Dubai, which is a major fossil fuel exporter, but it was sort of supposed to be focused on agriculture. That was the purpose of the meeting or one of the main premises of the meeting. And so were there any key outcomes here? Is this just politicians, you know, getting their 15 seconds on CNN or something? What were the key outcomes in terms of agriculture that you saw? So, of course, I only saw a portion of the whole thing. I mean, I told you it was immense in size and uh, complexity. And so I only saw a part, a piece of the puzzle. The meeting was announced in the weeks prior to starting as one that would largely focus on food production. And I was in this area where these food production issues were discussed. I found it fruitful. Obviously, there are politicians that describe what happens in their respective countries or states. There are environmental groups that claim that not enough is being done and certain industries should get out or drastically change. Then there were agricultural entities of different sizes, from small to large, from national to international. It was, I think, altogether a good, fair discussion platform on how we could improve food production globally, but also regionally, to reduce emissions while still satisfying a pretty daunting demand for products globally. I mean, the FAO was clear saying we need 50, 60, 70% more food. And we need to produce that much more food with less environmental impacts. And leading up to the conference, Bloomberg and The Guardian and several others quoted uh, from a report that they said would be published during the COP28 by the United Nations FAO. And they cited that the main finding of that report would be, it's called the Pathways Report, by the way, 
the main outcome of that report, they said, would be that developed country populations would be asked to drastically change what they eat away from animal source foods. That is what they all concurred on. Okay, So not two or so outlets, but I read dozens of articles along those lines. And mm. so I thought, oh my gosh, now I'm going to COP28 and all I hear is some anti-livestock, anti-animal source foods propaganda. And I was shocked that the opposite was true. The Pathways Report, published by the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, listed numerous ways of reducing the footprint of our food. And uh, a second report, also published by the FAO, was a livestock mitigation report. So specifically on what we need to do around livestock emissions. How do we minimize the impacts? And what this report says was, we need to have better genetics. We need to have better nutrition. We need to have the formation of veterinary systems in countries that currently don't to prevent diseases and or treat them. We need to have better reproduction of our livestock herds and so forth. Things that I had been saying for years. And then they talked about feed additives. They talked about manure treatment to reduce methane emissions and so on. All really good, really solid approaches that we know work. Most of them around productivity improvement, efficiency improvement, emission capture. And then they said in their report that of all approaches to reduce the environmental footprint of livestock, and particularly the carbon footprint of livestock, the least effective is a change in consumption patterns. Oh, no way. The least, the second least effective of all carbon emission approaches for livestock is a reduction of consumption of these foods by the populations. Leading to this conference, as I just said, was exactly the opposite. This right. report says we need to stop eating animal source foods or drastically reduce its consumption. None of that was true. And after COP28, there was not a word of any of these outlets what the FAO reports had said, which I find amazing because they were announced as breakthrough and really important documents that would be shared starting at COP28. There's a lot of directions to take that. You know, I, I guess I would like to start with Frank when you opened your comments, how encouraged you were by the meeting. Uh, you were encouraged by the meeting of the agricultural groups that were there, you know, and I know that you were a very objective thinker. And if you were discouraged, you would not be afraid to say, hey, this is was very discouraging, you know, and that's a great message right there that, you know, apart from the politicians who might be trying to get votes from this group or that group, if people that are sincerely interested in food production get together, they can have an encouraging dialogue and that we can actually move the needle on this, you know, and I didn't expect you to say that. I expected you to tell me, well, it's just a bunch of people that get together and blah, 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 you know, and I think from a dairy perspective, you know, let's face it, Frank, there's a lot of people working on climate change. There's been a lot, I don't know, maybe they're working on climate change. They're working on what cows emit. Right. And, and there's been some pretty high profile grants that gone out recently that they're going to kind of help with that. But the second piece of this equation, Frank, which I just don't understand, is are there anti-meat and animal food comment from i don't get it i who is driving that dialogue 
Yeah, so they're very different groups. I don't know if you heard about the Dublin Declaration. A Dublin Declaration was one that was signed by a thousand scientists throughout the world opposing to the fact that there is a witch hunt going on on animal agriculture and animal source foods and that this needs to stop because the vast majority of human populations throughout the world consumes animal source foods. In the United States today, 98% of all refrigerators contain animal source foods. Mm -hmm. So there's a small group of people who doesn't, but the majority of people do. So the question is not, how can we convince all these people to stop doing it? Because it's not going to happen. But the question is, how can we produce these foods in the most sustainable way we know of? Mm -hmm. That's the question I try to answer in the area of beef and dairy and, uh, and other livestock products. There are some people, particularly in the media arena, who are against that. They just say, no, we need to shrink herds. We need to change what people eat. They were so excited when these plant-based alternatives came up a couple of years ago. And they predicted that by 2030, at the latest by 2035, most of animal source foods would be replaced with these plant-based alternatives, mm -hmm. like the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Meat and so on. None of that has happened. In fact, the opposite has happened. These products are now going downhill. So the question still remains, how can we satisfy a drastically grown demand for animal source foods while not overburdening our environmental ecosystems by increasing or improving, optimizing animal welfare Keeping products safe, so food safety is a big, big, big issue. How do we attract a sizable workforce to help us produce these goods? And so who's against it? Well, I'm not really pointing my fingers at the vegans. You know, They have strong beliefs. Most of them are not climate-related. Most of them are ethics-related. Okay. They just have a problem with humans eating and killing animals to eat. So that's what most of their motivation is. But there are people who have alternative products to offer, and they are very, very uh, vocal. And they say, well, only if you eat our products, you help the environment, you help animal welfare, you help this and that and the other. But their voices are not so strong. What is strong is that many of the writers out there in the mainstream media are very anti-livestock. I would say most of them. Mm -hmm. I have not read any pro or any way in any way, shape or form positive report about animal agriculture in years in years all i read when i read and i do this all the time obviously mm -hmm. is very negative reporting on animal production on livestock production right. you hear stories of animal abuse of environmental pollution of food safety scandals and so forth and it's getting old it's really getting old and uh, it's not resonating with the readers anymore that people are just fed up with it yeah, uh, I'm fed is, up yeah. with it because yeah. I want to help these farmers to do the best job they know of doing. And I think that's what we owe them as society. They are the people producing the food we all eat. We must not forget that. Frank, and I, and I think we talked about this last time, was that it's people like yourself who get up every day, go to work, work, right? and try to get the science in front of people and base stuff on science, you know, and it's so hard these days. I was talking to my class, my dairy science class, and it sort of dawned on me what the challenge of this new generation will be. And the challenge of this new generation will be what, what is the truth? Finding and identifying the truth, you know, what yeah. is the truth? 
because it's really hard to figure out what the truth is when there's such an industry that's involved in putting out non-truths, you know, and it's fascinating, right? That now they live in a world where you can't separate fact from fiction. Used to be easy, you know, you anybody with a minimal amount of knowledge could figure out a snake oil salesman if you knew a little bit about science. But now the manner in which the untruth is put out there is very sophisticated, you know, and it's hard, you know. And so I think that's the challenge. It's interesting. The challenge is is how do you separate fact from fiction? Because I'm sure there's very many good intentioned people that want to do the right thing with respect to climate, mm -hmm. but they're fed a narrative that leads them down a path, you know? Well, if you think of overall politics in the United States, if you decide to use one type of media outlets versus the other type of media outlets, you hear of a totally different world, okay? Mm -hmm. So depending upon what filters you decide to use for yourself, you will think of this country and the politics and realities in this country as totally different compared to your neighbor who might be in the opposing party. It's the same thing with animal source foods, with livestock production. If you are in the, the agricultural camp, then the way you view this whole topical area is completely different compared to some of the activist groups and so forth. Completely different. I see a lot of propaganda on the anti-animal agricultural side, but I also see quite some greenwashing on the agricultural side, and that is equally dangerous. Okay, I have always been on the record as telling people, do not promise something you can't keep. Don't proclaim some 2030 goal that you know cannot be reached. Okay, So if you proclaim some goals, then make sure that you can live up to them. Because if you don't, then you lose trust. And that's the worst thing that can happen to you. I have been attacked countless times by countless people. But I can tell you that the people who really matter to me have formed trust. And that trust is based on credible research that we have done I think in the best manner that it can be done and then published, of course, but also communicated in ways that they understand and they trust us. I will never, ever let that be eroded or that get lost. That trust is the most important thing we have. You know, Frank, that was so well said. And I think we are moving the needle. I know probably frustrating and drives you crazy, but you know, your California example, Frank, of moving the needle. I mean, you guys are moving the needle, right? You guys have a, a plan to reduce methane by 2030 and it's going to happen. And it's a real plan. There's real science for it. You know, I understand methane digesters and I understand knifing in manure instead of flipping it up into the air and, and all these things that you guys are doing. There's science behind that, right? And we can point to this. I understand reducing methane production by ruminants in the different ways. And there's there's publications and there's standard errors and there's challenges, you know. And so I was talking to a friend of mine who works for the Nature Conservancy. And we were talking about when we grew up and it was the DDT era. And it was the acid rain era. I don't, you're probably too young to know about acid Oh, no, rain. I remember. And I talked to her. I said, you know... We were at a point in America where we would only dream of ever seeing a bald eagle because of the DDT and its effect on the bald eagles and their eggs. 
And I told her, I said, I was running down the trail in Columbia, Missouri, and there was this huge bird up in the tree. And it was a bald eagle, you know, in two miles from my house in Columbia, Missouri. Okay. Mm. All probably because somebody took to stand that this DDT was not what we wanted being released into the environment. And she said, well, you know, you bring up acid rain. She says, we own property, Adirondacks in New York State was devastated by acid rain. And now the fish are back, the wildlife is back, you know, because somebody made a decision to change, right? Somebody had the courage to change. And that, I think, is the climate story, is people have to have the courage to change to change what they're doing, you know, and the dairy industry is changing what they're doing with respect to methane. There is no question about that. Okay. We're going to move the needle on methane, you know, and we just have to have that attitude. We have to do it. Yeah. So first of all, when I talk to any kind of agricultural group, I explain the whole climate change issue as good as I can and the greenhouse gases and how they differ and so forth, how they warm the planet and their respective behaviors in warming the planet. I explain what can be done and uh, I explain why it's in their best interest, not just ecologically to do the right thing from an ecological perspective, but also economically because losses of methane are losses of energy. Methane is energy, okay? It's like that natural gas that you use to warm your house or cook your meals on. We don't want to just lose that to the atmosphere. We want to capture it and make it into something, like fuels or power or so. And that's what I just said is related to the animal manure. With respect to enteric emissions, those that are belched out, about 10% of the energy we feed to a cow gets lost as enteric methane. We have an interest on reducing that, right? Because it's not just methane affecting our climate. It's also money burned because that's feed energy that's getting lost. And so I think there are these win-win situations on that particular topic. And uh, once farmers understand that, they jump onto that bandwagon and successfully so. And that is what I'm trying to achieve through my work, to educate farmers, let them know what's real versus what's not, and then have them be part of a climate solution. And this is not some kind of greenwashing. This is real. If you reduce methane, you reduce warming. Once they understand that, and once they are in a situation where the state they are in supports that through incentives, then you really see things changing. Frank, as we close, I want to just quote Churchill during World War II. And it was, I guess the Allies had won a significant battle or something. And somebody asked him, is this the end of World War II? And he said, well, it's not the end. It's not the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning. Do you think we're at the end of the beginning here? Do you think globally after attending COP28 that something is starting to move? Yeah, I do think something is starting to move. I do think that there is so much more understanding of the farming community, what their contribution on climate is, also how they can minimize it. Uh, we also understand there are limits. You can't get it down to zero. Okay, that's not possible. If we want to continue to produce food, we have to understand there will be environmental consequences. And some of them will not be positive. Some of them will be negative. But we can minimize those impacts. What I find discouraging is 
that those people who are most critical of animal agriculture now see that these reductions are possible. Mm. They see that we can handle methane. And guess what they do? They immediately start a new topic. What's the new immediately topic? Immediately start a new topic. They just drop the one and then move on to the next, whether that's biodiversity or land use change or <laughs> nitrogen emissions. They move as fast as you can't imagine. And that's happening right now. I see it already happening in Europe. There, the new topic is now nitrogen emissions. I see it happening here in the United States. It's uh, disheartening because there are people who simply want to get rid of animal agriculture, and they're trying to find new venues of yeah. getting it. Well, Frank, I was reading on this biodiversity front, okay? There was an article in Nature. It was about global warming and the importance of these, uh, I don't know, wild, wild ruminants. And they were making the point that is, and, and they had a study, and, and these wild ruminants were really important to maintaining the biodiversity. They were essential because if you exclude, they, they had an exclusion zone, the biodiversity goes away. So I, it made me think about, you know, not wild ruminants, but ruminants in America and, and the role they play in maintaining natural areas or maybe, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, like animals have a role to play. Well, 250 years ago, in the pre-European settlement times of the United States, we used to have 60 million bison, six zero, uh, plus 40 million large antelopes, so approximately 100 million large ruminants. And then most of them got killed off and were replaced with beef and dairy cattle. The beef cattle are approximately 90 and the dairy cattle approximately 9 million. So if you add that up, it's again approximately 100 million large ruminants that we have in this country. So over the last 250 years, the amount of enteric emissions, for example, from ruminants has not sizably changed. Mm. It has gone up and down, but uh, the change has been from natural, meaning biogenic, meaning wildlife, to domesticated animals. Mm. What's clear is that the reason why, for example, the Great Plains are as fertile as they are is because of all these ruminants grazing those areas for thousands and thousands of years. And in the process, defecating and adding organic material to the soils, building soils, making what used to be dirt into soil, that is a critical function of optimizing biodiversity to mm. improve soil. And to improve soil, you need nutrients. And these nutrients stem from animals like the ones we're talking about. Yeah, so I'm going to close, Frank, and ask you the question closing remarks about the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel area. So do you think that was accurate, these individuals claiming that we're at the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era? Well, it's very hard to say. It's very hard to say because it all depends upon few players, few major players. Uh, what really matters the most right now is that the Chinese decide, the Indians decide which direction they want to go. It's not easy to replace fossil fuel. It's possible. But you have to have a strong political will. And I don't see that in large parts of the world. I see it in parts of the developed world, in Western countries. But a very sizable player, for example, the BRICS countries, Russia and, and others, that are really not motivated of stopping this because this is the foundation of their economy. And so we can't force them. If they don't want to do it themselves, then it's not going to happen. So I'm an eternal optimist. So I think uh, it can happen. Technologically, it's possible. The question is, is there a political will? But to me personally, 
not being a politician and so on, not looking at fossil fuels day in, day out, but looking at livestock, I think that we in animal agriculture can really make a difference and minimize the impacts that our sector has. And that is something that I will spend all my energy on and continue to be very strong about. Yeah, fair enough, right? And we are doing a great job with that. I mean, it's true. Do you have any other closing comments you'd like to make, Frank? Matt, I just find it interesting to see the perceived reality by some versus the reality as I uh, experience it. And I hate to say it, there is such a thing as fake news out there, okay? There is such a thing as fake news out there. There are people out there who like to have an alternative reality, which is their reality. And uh, when they see it's not real, it's not true, then rather than apologizing and saying, oops, we were wrong, we probably didn't even read those reports that we were talking about. Mm. We just thought they would say what we think they say. Instead of doing that, they just ignore the topic. And that's just dishonest and it's disheartening. And it's mm. a real disservice to both our farmers and to the consumers who want to know the truth. You always wish you had another life to lead. Not that you would do anything different in your current life, but I always wish I would wake up someday and be 18. And not that I did anything wrong in what I did in my current life, but you only get one life, right? And, and this whole challenge that you're working on, Frank, is so important. It would just be fun to be 18 again and say, I'm going to go work for Frank, or I'm going to go, I'm going <laughs> to work on this. You know, I'm going to get this, I'm going to do this thing, but we're going to get it figured out. And I think you're right, Frank. Let's get the cows right. And maybe we can't do everything. Maybe we got to let other people get the other stuff right. But we can do our big part, not our little part, our big part. So, Frank, that brings us to the end of our show. And I just like to say, you've been a fantastic guest. This is the second hour we've spent together. Both hours were, you know, you're just so gracious and so knowledgeable. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. Well, you're most welcome. Anytime. I hope we do it again. Yeah, we're All gonna, the best to your listeners. We should do it when California goes below the 2030 targets, you know, which is probably going to happen in 2026. You watch. You watch, Frank. It'll happen. You guys are good, all right? <laughs> and I'd just like to tell listeners, if you enjoy Dairy Digressions, be sure to like and subscribe and rate us. If you have feedback, please provide your feedback at ADSA at ADSA.org. If you would like to show notes and interested in listening to more episodes of Dairy Digressions or just learn about what's going on at ADSA, then go to our website, ADSA.org. And until next episode, I would like to thank everyone for listening. Thanks, Frank. You're welcome. Thank you.